0: For Children's Church. Welcome uh, to Woodside Community Church. My name is Matthew Shores. I'm extremely excited uh, that you guys are here. Um, we've got such a rich passage this morning that we just got to dive right in. And I'm still going to be long. Um, so just prepare yourself, gird your loins, get, get ready. Um, and turn uh, to the second chapter of Galatians. Uh, Galatians 2, we're going to be in verses 15 through 21. Uh, If you need a Bible, you can find one in front of you. We've provided you a Bible, right? So you have no excuse. Uh, Take it and turn to page 973 if you're looking there. Uh, We've now spent four weeks already um, in the book of Galatians. Um, And and this morning, we come to the transition between the first section and the second section of the book. Um, And so before we make that transition, it will be helpful to kind of get in our minds an outline of what Paul is doing in this letter and how he's kind of unpacking and unfolding his argument. Six chapters in Galatians, and the book breaks down very neatly into three parts of two chapters each. Uh, What Paul does with these six chapters and how he builds his argument is is brilliant, right? Part one, uh, chapters one and two, is history Part two, chapters three and four, is theology. And part three, chapters five and six, is ethics. Right? So let me explain that. As, as we've been looking at this first part, as we finish that up this week, we've been studying Paul's history or his biography, how God had dealt with him and saved him and called him and. Commissioned him. So Paul knows that before people will accept his message, they have to accept his authority as an apostle first. So that's where he begins with the history. And only then, starting this week and carrying on into chapters three and four, we get to the real heart of the book. And this is where Paul starts to really launch into his theology. Right? And the heart of that theology is this passage, or what we're going to look at here. This morning, and then finally, the book will conclude with two chapters of ethics. And ethics is simply um, how we are to act, how we are to live. Paul takes his theology from three and four, and then applies it to our daily lives in chapters five and six. So here's the argument of the book: what God has done, the history teaches us what we should believe, the theology, which then teaches us how we should live, the ethics. Because of what God has done, this is what is true about him and about you and what you should believe, and in light of that, this is how you should live, right? That's the book of Galatians, God's work, what we should believe about that work, and then how we should respond to it. That's what Paul is doing here in this letter. And so this morning, we begin um, kind of the transition into the theology part um, and God, I just wish I could make you understand um, how deep and wonderful these verses are. Uh, Martin Luther says, this passage contains the sum of all Christian doctrine. Because it is in these few short verses um, that Paul uses three words um, for the very first time in his letter. And these three words are at the very heart of Christianity. Right? Without these three words... There is no gospel, right? So write these down, chew on these, uh, dwell on these, pray about them, talk about them um, to one another. You've got to know and love these words and concepts. right, the first one is faith. Now, one of you is going to go back and technically see that he's used the word faith one time in chapter 1, verse 23, but he's using it in a different way. This is the first time he uses it. Um, like this. So the first time he uses these three words, he mentions faith, righteousness, and justification. Man, that's like, that's a whole couple years worth of theology that we're going to try to pack into one um, longish sermon. Uh, Listen to what Luther keeps writing about this. He says... This is the truth of the gospel. This is the principal article of all Christian doctrine, wherein the knowledge of all godliness consists. Most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know these articles well, teach them to others, and beat them into their heads continually. I love that Luther had a way with words. My goal this morning is to beat these words into your heads. Right? I, I, that's that's the desire of this time, guys. The gospel is just is so much more than we think that it is. And I know many of you think um, that you've got it down, but but don't be so sure. The one way you know you don't comprehend it is if you think it's easy to comprehend, right? If you're sitting there thinking, well, you know, this again, come on, more, more gospel, right? I get it, I've been a Christian forever. Jesus died for my sins. Uh, it's the easiest thing in the world. All you have to do is believe. Once you kind of move on already, but once you're thinking that, you're demonstrating that you don't really get what's going on at all. And the only way you know you're beginning to comprehend the gospel is to realize how little you actually do. All right? Here's one of the best tests to see if you're at least starting to get it. Have you ever had one of those moments where it was just like you were just struck by lightning, right? Someone is like they had just ripped off the blindfold, or someone had had flipped on a switch, and you kind of just, all of a sudden you're like, my goodness, that I mean, that's what the gospel is, right? I I'd heard it for so long, but I had I had never gotten it, right? Why has no one ever told me this before? Have you ever had one of those moments where everything just all of a sudden kind of falls into place and it starts to begin to make sense? Well, when you've had that happen, you're at least you're you at the beginning. You're starting to figure. It out. But guys, listen if Peter needs Paul to come in here and unpack um, the implications of the gospel and explain them more fully to him, then we need Paul um, to explain the gospel more fully to us. Right? Later in one of Peter's letters, he'll, he'll write that the gospel is so glorious that even the angels just long to stare into it and to look into it. Do you long to stare into this? good news? Do you delight in the gospel? Does it bring you great joy and happiness? Is it the driving force in your life? And if it's not, then you need a a fresh and a fuller understanding of what it is and what God has done for you um, in it. And that's what my prayer is um, for this time here this morning. So all I'm going to do, we're going to spend two weeks in this text um, because it's so good. So all we're going to do this week is we're going to just define our terms. We're going to make sure we know what these three concepts are. And then next week we're going to come back and we'll walk more step by step through the passage. But these terms are are so full and so rich and we're often so confused about what they actually are. We just want to define them. um, And that'll take us plenty of time. And then next week we'll go through it. So all we're going to do this morning is talk about righteousness, then about justification, and then about faith. Right? But we want to do that from this passage. Right? But listen to what I have to say. Let's see what the word has to say. So look down if you've got it open to Galatians chapter 2, starting in verse 15 and to the end. and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Let's pray um, as we begin. Father, as we come to such a, a heavy and weighty um, and rich passage, Father, um, we just, we need you to come and to work um, for us. Uh, I need you to speak um, through me. I need you to minimize uh, myself and maximize um, yourself, um, Lord, and I ask for you to do in this place what I cannot accomplish. And I need you to do um, for each of us what we cannot do um, for ourselves. Father, I pray that we would learn and be better informed and understand um, what these important words are what you have done for us. Um, but Father, for the purpose uh, of better knowing you and loving you and appreciating you and worshiping you. Father, I pray that we would leave here, leave here knowing you better and loving you more deeply. So Father, this time is for you and we ask um, that you would use it for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so first, um, remind ourselves, context, what's what's going on? Uh, Paul's, remember, he's writing this letter to a church that is under attack, uh, not physical attack, but spiritual attack. Paul has left, these false teachers have come in, and they're teaching this, this false gospel. This is a gospel of Jesus plus something else, a gospel of God's work plus your work. And as we've seen, Paul... He's not happy. He's very angry about what's going on. Paul knows that any adjustment to the gospel, however small and however subtle, ruins the gospel and makes it not the gospel at all. So Paul is writing this letter to defend his authority and to defend his message of salvation by grace alone. And he's just spent two chapters showing that he was in no way inferior to the original 12 apostles. Because Jesus himself had come to Paul, he had called him, he had saved him, and he had revealed the gospel to him. Paul is dependent on no man, uh, dependent only on God. And one of the ways he proved his independence and he approved his authority was last week by this encounter that he had with Peter where he publicly had to call Peter out and rebuke him. Do you remember what happened? Peter knew specifically that salvation was by grace alone. God had shown up to Peter back in Acts chapter 11 or so um, and revealed to him that the Gentiles um, were saved in just the same way as Jews were. There is no longer any distinction between the two groups. There's no longer two groups, but there is one group, right? The true Israel, the church, Jew and Gentile together in one body. Thus, though Jews were forbidden from eating and fellowshipping with Gentiles, Peter was glad to do it because God had shown him uh, that they were um, clean, that they were um, saved the exact same way as the Jews were. So Peter did it. That is, until, as we saw last week, some of his buddies showed up and started putting a little bit of pressure on him. Right? So he came, they came, he panicked, and he separated himself from the Gentiles. But let's go back to that for a second. Why? Why did he do that? What was the whole issue here? Why didn't Jews eat? With Gentiles, well, What was the point of, of circumcision and all of these rituals, like you could only eat certain things and you couldn't eat this and these ritual washes? What was the point of all that? Well, the point at the heart of every one of these things was this idea of cleanliness, right? Not not physical cleanliness, right? That's it's really important. Please continue bathing and showering and washing your hands. I like that. Um, but what we're talking about here is spiritual cleanliness cleanliness, right? The Old Testament was clear that you had to be ritually clean to come into the presence of God and worship Him. Gentiles were unclean, so the Jews would then completely separate themselves from the Gentiles. But have you ever read some of these things and read through the Old Testament and these parts? I'm like, what's, what's the deal? <laughs> this really seems so strange and, and so weird. But when you really kind of look at it and understand what these laws are, it's not that Ah. Now, these laws were very visible and tangible reminders. These laws were used by God as teaching aids. It was a constant reminder to the people that there was something wrong with them. They were spiritually unclean. They were in need of cleansing. It was an ever-present reminder that, that God was holy that you are sinful, and that there is a massive gap separating those two things, right? These, these laws would have made it um, constantly and painfully clear to the people that they needed something to come in and bridge that gap and to make them clean and to bring them back to God. And it seems strange, but if you think about it, we do the exact same thing today, don't we? We have different rituals and laws and rules that we keep To kind of maintain our own cleanliness um, in our own way. But we do this with clothes, and we do it with makeup, and we do it with with hair products, right? We we try to add and we try to hide and minimize the parts of ourselves that we don't really like, and we try to kind of maximize and emphasize the parts of ourselves um, that we do, right? I only generally wear Carolina blue shirts, right? Looks really good with my eyes, right? I'm not gonna be honest. So I always wear Carolina blue, right? So it's the eyes. I'm just demonstrating my vainness um, to you. I can be completely honest with you. But we all do that in certain different ways. We all have something that we're doing um, to hide our um, uncleanliness, right? Think about it. Have you ever, like, just run into someone out on the street, not um, together as you would like? What is that feeling that you have when you run into someone that you really looked up to or you like or you respect and you don't feel like you're together, right? You kind of feel this weird, like, almost this kind of shame thing. Right? It's, always, it's always almost happens to me. Like, this is not... How I usually dress and appear, right? So on a regular day, Melissa needs me to run to the store. I'll throw on sweatpants and a T-shirt. I'll throw on a backwards hat. And I got my glasses on, and I never shave. And I walk out in the street, and every time I run into somebody that I don't want to run into, right? And I'm just like. I know they're thinking, like, who is this punk? Like, what, what does he look like? And I have this, this feeling of like my my uncleanness is getting out, right? They're they're seeing who I I really am, right? So we use our clothes and our makeup and how we dress and act in these fronts that we put on to mask this feeling of uncleanliness and this feeling of insufficiency that we all feel deep down inside. So we all take certain measures to deal with this uncleanness that we have, right? That's all these Old Testament laws were about. It was making the people aware of those laws and making them and pointing them towards God as the only hope, right? They said, listen, guys, God's holy. You're clearly not. You need something to make you clean and reconcile those two things, right? So we have to be clean to be in God's presence. So what do we do? Well, the Jews thought that they were made clean by these rituals. Well, if I just do these washings and I don't eat these things and I, I stay away from the Gentiles, then I'll be clean and I'm good enough and I can be in God's presence, right? It's all about cleanliness, uh, what's going on here with, with Peter and his eating. And and it's and in that context, the cleanliness and the separation that Paul uses to launch into the very heart of his gospel message. Let's, let's jump to the end and start there. Look at verse 21. He says, "For if righteousness were through, were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose." There's a million dollar word right there, righteousness. That's a just a super Christian word that we throw around, and we don't ever know what we mean um, by that word, right? If you've been coming to Wednesday night Bible study, we're going to review here um, for a second to get everybody else um, on the same page. Righteousness is related to cleanliness, right? Paul's point is that there is no righteousness to be found through the law. In other words, these guys, these false teachers, who were coming in and teaching about the necessity of circumcision and eating and, and separating from Gentiles. And Paul says, no, those things do not bring righteousness. Thus, it has to come from somewhere else. But there's a first and more important question we need to, to deal with. What is righteousness? Uh, what is that kind of word? Can you define um, that word as someone was just to ask you on the street? Now, there's a couple different Greek and Hebrew words that we translate um, righteousness. One of them just means to be straight um, as opposed to crooked. It means literally to kind of pass inspection, to be approved, to be up to specs, um, to be up to standard. Right? When we say God is righteous, we mean he is good and he is right and he is holy. Right, that's one of the ways we use the word righteous, and that's, that's correct. But another word that's translated righteousness usually kind of carries with it the idea of to be right with. Right? Righteousness in the Greek has a relational side to it that our word doesn't have. To be righteous is to be right with Someone Righteousness means to be presentable or acceptable. It means that I have passed the inspection in the eyes of a significant other. I have been found pleasing to someone that I want to please. So righteousness means to be right with, to be reconciled to someone, to be well-pleasing to someone or presentable. In other words, right, it means to be clean um, and acceptable to that person. Tim Keller defines righteousness, and this really kind of helped me figure this out I didn't codify this. I'm going to say it twice. Write this down. He says, "Righteousness is a validating performance record that opens doors." I'll explain. It, it is a validating performance record that opens doors. Think through that. Here's here's how you think about it. R and R. This is how you can get it. Your righteousness is your resume. That's what you need to think of when you think of righteousness. Think of your resume. Right, so you all have a resume. I remember graduating college um, and trying to get a job and I'm filling out a resume. And you like, I have nothing to put on this. I, was just, I have no qualifications. I have no skills or abilities. There's nothing that's going to get me a job. So I went to seminary. Um, that's what I did. Um, get it. It's not why. I wish I but I had no resume. I had nothing that I could qualify or offer to any prospective employer so that they would hire me, right? Well, our righteousness is like our moral or our spiritual resume, right? So what is your resume? When you want a job, you, you fill out this resume, you submit, uh, you write down all these things that you're really good at. Here are my skills, and I'm good at Microsoft Word and Office and... Programming and all these things that you can do, and these skills. And here's my work experience. I did this and this and this, and I led this and did all these great things. And what you're doing is you're taking your resume, you're submitting it to an employer, you're hoping that they'll look at that resume and say, Yep, you're good enough, you qualify, you get the job. Right? Well, that's what your righteousness is on a moral and spiritual level. Right? So we present our righteousness and hope that we will be accepted by God, worthy of the job. Righteousness is resume. But the bad news, as Paul makes painfully clear in Romans 3, is that none of us are righteous. None of our resumes are good enough to get the job. Your resume is just as bad as 22-year-old Matthew Shores' resume. You cannot get the job. You do not qualify to be in relationship with God. So we are not relationally right with them. We are unclean. We do not have righteousness, and that is bad news. So here in verse 21, when Paul says that righteousness doesn't come through the law, well, the first implication is obviously that we need righteousness. We need it. We don't have it. If it means to be in right standing with God and we don't have it, that's a problem. Um, We've got to get it. But if it doesn't come from the law, well, the following implication is that it does come from somewhere, right? We need it. We don't have it. He says you can't get it through the law. In other words, you can't build it up or earn it or you can't get it through anything that you do. So we have this big, glaring righteousness problem. We are unclean and we are not right with God. That's righteousness. And that then brings us to our second critically important term. If we need righteousness but we don't have it and we can't earn it, then what do we do? Well, the answer is... Surprisingly, if you know me, I guess not surprisingly, but the answer is nothing, right? You don't do anything. God has to do something for us, and that's where justification comes in, right? So, so far, we've been talking in kind of sort of relational terms, like cleanliness and righteousness, but with the juice of justification, Paul is now borrowing a word that is often used in in legal context, right? This was a Greek legal word. And we know that this word is really, really important because Paul uses the word three times in just that one verse. Look at verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So also we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. Alright, look back at verse 21. Look at verse 21 and notice that he says that righteousness is not through the law. And then out here in verse 16, he says that justification is not by the law. Right? He kind of subs one term in for the other. Notice that. These two terms are intimately related. In fact, if you're looking at the pew Bible or if you've got an ESV, you'll see footnote 2. And three, tacked on to the end of the word justification in verse 16 and righteousness in verse 21. Look down, then at the bottom of the page, and you'll see that for justification, it gives the possible alternate translation of counted righteous. And for righteousness, it gives the alternate translation of justification. Why? Because in the Greek, these two different words are based on the same root. Word, right? They have the same base. The word justified, used three times in verse 16, is dikayo, right? And in justification in verse 21, is dikaiosune. right? You can hear this, they're the same root. You can hear the beginning of it is exactly the same. So to justify means to make righteous. And to be righteous means to be justified, right? The terms are intimately. Related, they are basically interchangeable, right? But we've talked about the righteousness side of it so far. Let's focus here on the justification for a moment. What is justification, and how are we justified? This was the question that was at the heart of one of the most significant events in history that ever happened 500 years ago. This was the very heart and the core of the Reformation. When these churches led by men like Martin Luther and John Calvin, they split off from the Roman Catholic Church and just utterly changed the world. And there were many reasons why that, that split happened, but this was the key central issue justification was why we separated ourselves and why we differ from the Roman Catholic church. So what is it? It's really important. We got to know what it is. It's a legal term and it qu- quite simply means to declare right. Right? Justification is the opposite of condemnation, right? Justification means to be pronounced innocent of the charges instead of guilty. It is to be pardoned or set free and accepted. But this is really, really important. Think back to the discussion of clean and unclean. Remember, the Jews considered the Gentiles unclean. These false teachers were then arguing that to be saved, Gentiles had to be circumcised, eat rightly, and do all these rituals so that they could be ritually clean. If we're unclean, we need to be made clean to be in God's presence, is what they are saying. But notice here that Paul doesn't explain salvation and being made right with God in terms of clean and unclean. This is really important. Focus here for a minute. Cleansing would suggest that God accepts us because he first makes us clean. Right? He gets rid of all of our sinful attitudes and, and habits and that would mean that we um, become acceptable to God because we are actually becoming righteous. right here's where this is this is important uh, listen in and focus because this is a very subtle but a hugely important distinction. right when God justifies us, he doesn't make us clean right when God justifies us, he doesn't make us clean. He declares us clean. And that's a very important difference. He doesn't make us righteous. He declares us to be righteous. When you you justify something, you don't change the fact of it. You change the view of it. Think about it like this. A group of us played volleyball Friday night. It was loads of fun. I can barely walk. I'm so sore. My knee is busted up and swollen and I can't bend it. I can't get up and down steps, and Emma keeps giving me a hard time about it. Um, it was it was—it was a lot of fun, um, but I'm feeling the the effects. But say, Friday night, before we went and played volleyball, Melissa had said to me, hey, you know, I'm going out with some of the ladies, um, so I need you to be back at 9 um, so that I can get um, to the restaurant and, and spend some time um, with them, All right? Okay, fair request. Well, 9 o'clock rolls around. I'm not there. Uh, 10 o'clock rolls around. I'm not there. Uh, finally, about 11 o'clock, I come, you know, rolling through the door, uh, I'm two hours late. Trouble. Right. She, she is understandably and justly not going to be very happy with me. So, so what happens next? I desperately need justification. Right? and I, I need it fast. So, so, what do I do? Well, I start telling her what happened. Well, you see. You know, Sarah was in the back and she had this beautiful diving pass and she got it perfectly to Menzie in the middle, and Menzi just had this this brilliant set, it was so perfectly placed, and I just went soaring through the air like Michael Jordan and I hit the ball so ridiculously hard and perfectly. It was like this train directed at this poor woman's nose and it just shattered her face, basically, right? And I, I destroyed her nose. Right? Again, this is a self-serving illustration because I can't hit, I'm not any good, I'm just Building myself up and making a fun little—if um, it was the, the hitting illustration, it would be Minzy. That—that man can crush um, the ball. But—but but imagine um, that I—you know—I hit it really hard and I shattered this lady's nose. Well, say I was the only one with a car, so I have hurt this poor woman. I—I'm responsible. I throw her in my car. I take her to the yard to make sure that she's—you know—taken care of and she gets all fixed up. Right? Well that's a pretty decent reason, isn't it? That's—that's that's pretty um, justifiable. I was helping this poor woman that I had hurt and it was better to help her than to leave her and get home in time. I have justified myself. But think about that. What does that mean? It hasn't changed the fact that I was late. I was late. I still was. It is, it is on my record. I, I cannot change that. But what I have done is I have changed Melissa's view of the fact that I was late. Right? Justification doesn't change the fact. It changes the view of that fact. That's what God does for us in justification. When God justifies us, he doesn't change our record. I am still a terrible sinner. But he changes the view of our record. He now considers those records differently. In justification, God doesn't make us good and righteous. But through it, he now considers us as if we were good and righteous and that is good news but think about that, that raises another big question if you're tracking with me, if we're not good and righteous then how in the world can a good and just God consider us good and righteous and the answer is in verse 20, look at verse 20 I have been crucified with Christ and that is a stunningly bold statement but what does it mean? Right? It can't mean that he was literally and physically crucified on the cross at the same time as Jesus. Right? Paul wasn't like secretly one of the thieves on the other side. And he somehow survived and got down and like, I was crucified with Christ. No, that's not what he's talking about at all. Um, but he can claim that he was in a way crucified with Christ. Well, how do we understand this? Well, think about it in terms of representation and substitution. Representation and substitution. In Romans 5.12, Paul says that when one man, Adam, sinned, all sinned. That's interesting. How, How can he say that? In some sense, he's saying that you sinned in the garden. Adam was our head. He was our representative. What Adam did applies to us. It's as if we ourselves did it. Think of it like government, right? You're not sitting in Congress, you know, passing laws and making all these decisions and doing these things yourself. No, you vote for a representative who, for better or for worse, literally represents you, right? He is there for you, acting for you. When he makes a decision, it's your decision, and it affects you. Or consider um, power of attorney. You know what power of attorney is, right? When my sister was a missionary in Asia for a number of years... She legally gave to my mother the power of eternity. It's a legal right that you then have to represent someone and act on their behalf. If you give power of attorney to someone else, then legally the government looks uh, uh, at what my mother did as legally um, as if my sister herself was doing it, right. My mother was standing in her place and acting for her, and what she did was what my sister did. Right? That's power of attorney. So we're actually very seri- uh, familiar with this idea of representation. But you may object. Oh, hey, both of those examples, I get to vote. I get to choose my power of attorney. I have a say in who represents me. I, I didn't choose Adam. It's-, it's not fair that Adam. Represents me, but but Moses, come on, think about it, right? Who do you trust to better choose your um, best representative? Are you really saying that you could choose a better representative than God could choose for you um, a better representative? Of, Of course not, right? God perfectly chose Adam to be our representative, and what Adam did affected us all. It was as if we ourselves did it. But, whereas our representation by Adam led to extremely negative and deadly consequences. Our corresponding representation by Jesus led to infinitely positive and life-giving blessings. Just as we sinned in Adam, so, thank God, we also died in We were, in this sense, crucified with Him. He was our representative. He was our substitute. He moved us aside. He took our place. And what He did for us, He did as us, in a sense. The verse goes on. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And this is the supremely important but but often overlooked doctrine of union with Christ. Christ. Right, Pastor Kevin DeYoung says that union with Christ is probably the most important doctrine that you've never heard of. Right, we don't talk about it. But Paul talks about it a lot, and we ignore it. Frequently, he, he speaks of us as being in Christ. Or as he does here, he speaks of Christ being in us. Union with Christ is simply the term that we use to describe our being united to or joined to Jesus by the Holy Spirit. We are in him, And since we are united to him, what he does applies to us. He has the power of attorney over us. He is our representative. And this is the only way that God can justify us and declare us innocent and righteous, though we are not actually righteous. Right? Romans 3.26 says that God did all of this so that he might be just, right, in. Um, Punishing our sin in Christ and also the justifier of us all. Think about it because it would be terribly unjust for a judge to declare a murderer innocent when it was 100% certain, right? We have it on video that he committed that murder. That's not justice. So how can God remain just in declaring us innocent when we are not? And it is only through the substitution of Jesus Christ. He stands in our place. He represents us. There has been crime. There must be payment for God to remain just. But He provides that payment for us in Christ Jesus. Thus, He remains just by punishing our sin in Christ. And He remains our justifier by forgiving us and declaring us righteous because our sin has been paid for. So that is justification. God declares us to be innocent and righteous when we are not actually righteous, but he can declare us that because we are in Christ. Martin Luther famously said all the time, he said in Latin, simul justus et peccator, which means we are simultaneously sinners, though justified. Saints and sinners. It's a borrowing. I just stole that from from Martin Luther. We are simultaneously sinners and we are simultaneously justified. That's what justification is. He declares us righteous even though we are not because of Jesus Christ. But how? How does he apply this justification to us? How are we actually united to Christ so that what he does applies to us? And that brings us into our last word, faith. And we should spend so much more time um, on this than we have, because I think that faith is possibly one of the most confused and misunderstood topics in all of theology, right? This this hasn't always been the case. Historically, the church has generally gotten faith correctly. It's just been in the last, like, little bit of time that a couple of bucket heads have just gotten things completely backwards and kind of muddied the waters for everyone else. Paul uses this word faith three times in our passage, and he sums up his argument in verse 16. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Right? That's like your theme of the book, right? They're not justified by works of the law, but through faith. This is what he has been building toward, and this is what he's going to further unpack from here on out. The false teachers were teaching justification by a combination of faith and works. In other words, something God does plus something you do, but Paul is teaching that justification is through faith. Alone. In other words, it is solely something that God does. And here's where the church has largely gotten off track in recent history. Right? We have redefined faith. Here's how faith is is usually taught. God loves everybody so much. Um, Jesus died for everybody. He said, "Oh, here's just grace." Um, for everybody. Here's just a little bit of it. Um, you guys can do with it what you want. Um, if you just believe, in other words, if you add your faith to my grace, then I will see your faith and I will respond to it and I will save you. Right, listen, and in this understanding, I've used this illustration before because this was me in high school. In this illustration, God is like, He's the nerdy kid. Right, I was like five, six, I don't know, like 100 pounds. Um, short little scrawny kid. Right, you, 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 you invite a girl to prom. You, like, you float out the invitation. You're like, please, I really hope this pretty girl chooses, right? So when when this is our understanding of faith, right, God is like the nerdy guy who invites the beautiful girl to prom and then he sits back wringing his hand and crossing his fingers, just hoping that she chooses him, right? If she does, it will be his work, the invitation, plus her work, choosing to accept that invitation, which then work together to lead to her being brought to prom. You see, in this understanding, we act and then God responds. And people today generally treat our faith, as, as faith is our part of the salvation equation. God does grace. We do faith. And when you add what God does to what you do, then you get salvation. And guys, listen, that is little more than what these false teachers were preaching in Galatia. Jesus plus something else. What God has done plus what you do. If faith is the part that you play, the thing that you add to your salvation, then you have made salvation according to works. And that is the exact thing that Paul has just said is so terribly wrong. If faith is the thing that you have to do to be saved, then it's a work. That's the definition of a work. A work is something that we do that brings about or merits our salvation. Right? The church in America today has made faith into a work. But faith is not a work. And a common understanding of faith today does not come from the Bible. Listen to what one of my favorite um, theologians he says about this. He says: never is our act of faith. The ground or the cause of our righteousness. In other words, never is what we do, our act of faith, the cause of us being made righteous, of us being justified. He says, if this were so, faith would become a meritorious work, which is an idea everywhere opposed by Paul. Faith in Christ is simply the regenerated sinner's saving response to God. That is a fantastic definition of faith. Write that down. Faith is simply the regenerated sinner's saving response to God. Listen, this is so important. If what we do, our faith, precedes and is the cause of our salvation, then it's a work. To rely on yourself for faith is no different than to rely on yourself for works. In both cases, everything is dependent on you and what you do, and what decision you make. It's all about you. But Paul specifically says that we are not justified by works. So faith can't be the thing that we do that brings about our salvation. Well, what is it then? If faith's not the thing that we do to bring about salvation, what is faith? The Bible tells us. It says quite simply that faith is a gift. Right? Faith is something that God has to give to us. Ephesians 2 verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. You didn't do it. This is not something that you did. Right? This is the gift of God. Romans 12.3 talks about the measure of faith that God assigns and that God gives to each person. Hebrews 12.2 describes Jesus as the author of our faith. Well, what is what is the author of something? Right? He's the one that brings life to something. He's the one that creates it. Jesus creates in us and gives to us a faith. Faith is a gift. It is not our work. We are not saved because of our faith. We are saved because of the object of our faith. We are saved solely by the grace of God that is given to us through the work of Jesus Christ. He does the work, not us. But how? How does he give us that grace? How is this justification applied to us? that's where the faith comes in, right? Faith is the instrument, right? Faith is the means by which God applies what Christ has done to us. Faith is like the cord that binds us to Christ. I've used the illustration before of of jumper cables, right? That's, That's a great way to understand what faith is. You're just a dead car battery sitting on the side of the road, right? Dead cars don't drive places and they don't Do things. But God comes in with his working car powered by a a battery all juiced up with life. And he takes jumper cables and he connects your dead battery to his live battery, and then he transfers the energy from life to death and he charges your battery. And he does it through the jumper cables. That's what faith is. Guys, listen, faith by itself is useless. It cannot do anything. It's the source. That matters it is the object that matters we are saved by grace and by grace alone not God's grace combined with our faith it's not his work plus our work he works we benefit right the gospel is not God, the, the nerdy teenager just throwing out invitations to the prom, just just hoping that someone would choose him and respond. No, again, that's how I, we like to think of ourselves, right? We're we're the prom queen. Like God will be lucky if he gets us on our team. Right? We're like LeBron James and in the Cavaliers. Like, oh, please just choose us, please just choose us. No, that's not the gospel. The gospel is that we are spiritually dead, lifeless sinners. God doesn't just offer us rescue and then sit back and hope that we get things together. No, he dives into the water after us and he rescues us and he breathes life into our dead lungs. If you see someone drowning, please don't go there and be like, "Hey." You want my help, right? You're face down in the water. You're drowning. Please, just tell me you want help and and I'll help you. No, you dive in after the person and you go get them, right? God isn't waiting around for us to do something. He has taken the initiative. He has intervened and he has rescued us when we had no hope. He rescues, then you respond. He acts and then you act. Anything that puts your action before his action is not the gospel. And that's what Paul is saying here. Justification is not by works. It is not by anything that we do. It is solely by grace applied to us through faith. God does it all for us. If it's not, if it's something that we do, then we just slipped into the world of religion. We can find that anywhere else. No, the gospel is that God does it all for us. The Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, he once said 100 years ago, more than that, he said if we put one stitch into the garment of our salvation, then we shall ruin the whole thing. And right? if we try to act like what we do and what we choose and our faith comes before and leads to our salvation, then we ruin the whole thing. Listen, I don't want my hands on that. Or I don't want a shirt, so I don't want any role in that at all. I want the person who understands this to do it For me, I want God to come in and rescue me and give me His grace. So faith is our God-enabled and God-given response to His grace. Faith is how He applies the benefits of Christ's labor to us. Listen to what Woodside's statement of belief says about this. This is fantastically written. When was this written? Who who knows? This was written long before any of us were alive. Uh, This is what, maybe not some of us, but most of us. But listen to what this says. It says, The new creation is brought about by our sovereign God in a manner above our comprehension. Right, so he brings it about, he does it, then it goes on solely by the power of the Holy Spirit, right, the Holy Spirit's the one who does it to us in connection with divine truth so as to secure our voluntary obedience to the gospel, and here's the key, its proper evidence appears in the holy fruits of repentance, faith, and newness of life. That's beautiful, and that is perfectly put. Now, do you see what our statement of faith says? It says, the new birth comes first. In other words, what God has done for us, brought about by our sovereign God, solely by the work of the Holy Spirit. He does it. And then it says, and the fruit of that new birth, meaning after that new birth, after what he has done, the response to what he has done, the proof of it is our repentance and faith. God acts and then we respond. God saves and then we repent and believe. And that's the gospel. Anything else is putting the onus on us and our action and what we do and is making the gospel about us. Right? God acts, we respond. And that's what faith is. It is our response to what he has done for us, It is the means through which God justifies us and declares us righteous. And since he saves us, he guarantees that we will follow through in trust. And that's all faith is. It is trusting him. It is relying on him. It is depending on him as our Savior and Lord. And so those are the three critically important terms right, that are so often gotten wrong. But we've got to get these right because Paul is very clear that these are so important. And These verses are, again, they're so rich that we're going to come back to this passage next week. And we'll, there's a couple verses in there that are really confusing. Like what, is, what is he talking about there? And we're going to walk through it step by step and unpack his... But we had to define our terms this week to make sure uh, we're all on the same page, and next week we'll get into it um, a little bit more. But guys, listen, this isn't just supposed to be some abstract intellectual exercise. I don't want you to leave here thinking, oh, that's interesting, I hadn't heard that before and I learned something new today. Yes, that's good. I want you to learn something. I want you to be informed and better understand these concepts, right? But the point is not just for the sake of having more knowledge, but for the sake of having a more accurate picture of what God has done for us so that we can better appreciate what he has done for us and so that we can better worship him and praise him and thank him for that. Theology is meant to lead to doxology. Knowledge is supposed to serve the purpose of worship. We were unclean sinners. We were totally unrighteous. We were not good, and we were not in good or right standing with God. But the gospel is that God has given to us Christ's righteousness and Christ's right standing with God through his work in our place. He was our representative. God saves us. He justifies us, meaning he declares us innocent And righteous, not because of anything that we have done, but solely based upon what Jesus Christ has done for us. Everything else out there, wherever you go and look, whatever religion or philosophy or way to live it is, everything else is about you and what you do. Don't make the gospel about you and what you do. The gospel is the only unique one that says you didn't do it, you didn't deserve it, you couldn't do it, you didn't even desire it, but God has come in and done it for you. He has given you grace. He has rescued you when you were lifeless at the bottom of the ocean. That is an amazingly remarkable message. And it is so important that we get it right, guys, because listen, if it's just we were kind of had this little sin problem, but we could get it together ourselves and, and figure things out and, and have faith and be saved, listen, you're just never going to appreciate grace because it's always going to be a role that you played in it. But if you were dead at the bottom of the ditch with no life and no hope and God got you and rescued you and gave you new life and gave you right standing with him and guaranteed your future with him for eternity, that's a completely different story. Finally understanding that will just unleash this this thankfulness and this gratitude for the thing that he has done for you that you could never do for yourself. So we've got to understand what he has done so that we can better thank him and praise him and worship him. The gospel is about God and what he has done for you. He has justified you. He has given you a righteousness that you did not deserve. And He has given you the glorious gift of faith through which He applies that righteousness to you. He does all the work. He gets all the glory. Let's close in prayer. Thank you for um, for His kindness and His generosity. Father, thank You um, that Your message is uh, so much more than we can even begin to comprehend. Um, Father, I thank you that it is so deep and it is so um, rich uh, that we can never exhaust um, your good news. Um, Father, I just pray right now that you would soften our hearts Lord, um, that you would show us um, where we are so prone um, to try to build up and cling to our own righteousness, where we are so convinced um, that we've got to have control and we've got to be um, the ones deciding our faith. Father, I thank you for the good news um, that you are the rescuers of sinners. And that you have come in um, to my hopeless and helpless situation and saved me um, from myself and and from my sin. And I just pray uh, for many in here that we would fully understand um, that, that you are the God who saves, um, Lord. And I pray that you would just open people's hearts um, to the good news. Father, I pray that you would grant faith and repentance, that you would bring um, new life into this place. Father, I can do nothing um, for these people um, spiritually. I can't touch their hearts. I, I have no ability um, whatsoever. Um, but Father, you have um, all the ability in the world. And I ask that you would bring sinners um, from death to life. Um, Lord, that you would sanctify us. You would uh, show us uh, where we are um, not honoring you and where we are not um, following you. And you, would, you, would, you would bring us in line um, with your um, good news, um, Father. We we know we feel deep down that we have no righteousness within ourselves, Father. We feel that guilt and that shame and that uncleanness, um, Father. But I thank you um, that you have declared us righteous when we were not, um, because of Jesus Christ working in our place. Father, help us to love that truth and cling to that truth and, and teach that truth um, to those around us. I pray that it would lead to a better understanding what you have done for us, um, Father, so that we can better um, love you and thank you and appreciate you. Father, you're the point. Uh, we want you to get on the glory. We want it to be all about you, um, Father. So help us um, to do that. Father, I thank you um, for the blessing of the church and the opportunity to worship and, and to fellowship. Lord, continue to build and grow um, this place spiritually, um, Father, based upon um, your word and your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen.